0: I, uh, about, about two years ago, got to start the journey, this fall will be two years, of getting to be the senior pastor here at Four Points Church. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that drew me to this church uh, is its mission statement. Um, mission statements at various times are uh, clarifying and that they give clarity as to what the church is trying to do. Uh, I would submit to you that uh, all mission statements in a Christ-centered church are in some way trying to achieve and get done by the work of the Spirit, the Great Commission, which is what the church is here to do, to go into all nations and to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and and teach them to obey and is with you always, even to the very end of the age. For us, the way that we describe our way of going about doing that Great Commission is that we exist to reach the least and the lost, and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's so central to me uh, is that uh, 2010, a team of eight people moved with me across country to plant a church to reach the people in the margins. Uh, The people that perhaps other churches were missing or ill-equipped to reach And we prayed this prayer, I never will forget it, as a team in California before we launched the church. And in it, as we were going around, I prayed this prayer. My creative arts pastor at the time reminded me of it later in life. He said, I wish you would have not prayed that prayer with that much detail. And I said, well, why? He said, because it would have been great if we would gotten a little bit wider, less messier people than what you prayed for. And in that prayer, I said, God, give us the people that no other church wants. Give us the people that everyone else has given up on. Give us the people that everybody else in the world has quit on. Give us the people that are so messy that it will inconvenience my life to be in the mess with them as you work it out for your glory. And, and I began to pray that prayer. And he reminded me, my creative arts pastor, three or four years into the church plant, God's answered every word of that prayer <laughs> because it was messy. I never will forget there was a lady named Miss Donna. I talked about Miss Kathy a couple of weeks ago because this series is really built on this mission that we have as a church and God's heart that I think sets the tone for this mission. Miss Kathy was a homeless lady that had a really rough life, and and God did some incredible stuff and taught me a lot through her. But there was another lady named Miss Donna that was coming to our church, and she struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction and was constantly on and off drugs and alcohol in our church. And uh, one Sunday in the middle of preaching, Miss Donna showed up, walked down to the front row, sat down directly beside me. My associate pastor was preaching. She put her arm around me and looked at me and said, Pastor Russ. And I said, yes. And she said, can God really love me just as I am right where I'm at? And I said, absolutely, he loves you. And she said, even if I've been a lush, and I said, even if you've been a lush, he loves you. And then she proceeded to put her arm around me and kiss me on the cheek and lay her head on my shoulder for the remainder of the sermon. The safety team in the back didn't know what to do. They were paralyzed. They were like, is this where we pounce? Is this where we don't pounce? Is this Is this go? Because most safety teams in churches are made up of people who are former military who are hoping something bad happens so that they can like... And we're not supposed to say that out loud, but you just you just need to know in this church there are some people that probably are doing things that we've told them they shouldn't do, and they're hoping something happens so that they can use it to say, that's why I brought it, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> We're not far from Texas, not far from Texas at all. <laughs> Down with her shoulder on me, she begins to whisper to me, will you pray for me? And I said, absolutely, but try not to cause a scene. I said, we'll do it as soon as Pastor Chris is done preaching, we'll pray. So Pastor Chris finished preaching. He uh, then gives an invitation. She then stands up to respond to that invitation. Some women from our prayer team wisely come in, and they begin to minister to her. And I go out the back door to go and greet all the people as they go out from church into their week. And so as I hit the back door, the entire safety team I hear of the radios say something along the lines of red alert, and they're all running in. I have no clue what's going on. Is there a crisis? Are we going to end up in the news? Is something bad happening? What's going on in the church? Well, a few moments later, uh, Miss Donna comes out with no shirt on and her arms behind her back yelling, I'm hot. Apparently, during the invitation, a spirit, I don't want to say that it was the holy one, got into her and she began to take her shirt off and spin it around her head as the worship music was going on. It was messy. One of our safety team members, as she said, I'm hot, this is my bikini. He said, no, ma'am, you're drunk, it's winter. (laughs) Another time, I wish that was the only messy experience we had with her, but there was another time where her and her then-boyfriend broke up. So she got with another boyfriend who himself was a drug addict and homeless, and they came into church, and they saw the guy that had broken her heart, apparently, sitting on the tier below them. We were in a three-tiered theater. And so they were sitting on the second tier, about a foot raised above the first tier where this guy was at. They had a bottle that we thought was water. It turned out to be vodka. She poured it on his head during the sermon, and he tried to, her new boyfriend tried to light a match and light him on fire it was messy. My, my point in telling you this story is that I don't believe there is this sanitized version of the kingdom that many of us long for that's safe behind our suburban gates. That, that where we often find the kingdom of God is in the most bleak and broken of places And where you find the workers that God has commissioned is often in those difficult spots. I say that because 2020 did a number on us. A lot of us who we thought were Christian soldiers left our post and our boots and put them in the closet for the sake of comfort behind safe fences and safe places and safe zones so that we would no longer have to live in the difficulty of a kingdom that we live in that's broken as kingdom citizens of a kingdom that's come, that's whole. We lost our why behind why we teach. We lost our why behind why we endure. We lost our why behind what we are here for. Or we discovered that our why was never God's why to begin with. Five months went by, and we didn't see Miss Donna for a while. We had been loving on her for over a year's time. Those weren't back-to-back Sundays. I will say she helped with church growth because when everyone heard that there was a woman dancing with her shirt off, the next week we had a record attendance. A woman came in five months. We hadn't, couldn't find her. We were looking for her. Miss Donna. couldn't find her. But there was a woman that came in in her late 40s, beautiful, sitting middle of the back row one Sunday. She looked at me as I was walking into the church, talking to people, and she said, do you remember me? I said, no, I, sort of. And she said, I'm Miss Donna. You guys loved me when everyone else ignored me. And you put up with me when I was really difficult to put up with. And you showed me God's love, and I've been clean for five months now folks, that's the kingdom of God, that's the heart of God, and it's what you find whenever God's at work in your heart. It's a love that endures. It's a love that overcomes. When we say that we want to reach the least, the lost, and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have to confess that there are times in our church's history where we have failed to love the marginalized well. We're not perfect. So this is not a sermon or a series that's about a church going to love the messy people well we may mess up because we're messy too because sometimes i don't want to be inconvenienced with the mess of my brother or my sister in christ and i would rather just keep my own messes which are overwhelming me and stressing me out to myself so that i can be overwhelmed and burdened by them instead of serving you in your mess as we together see god work in the mess to bring something glorious for his good and so i want to i want to just remind you that this was the same question that was asked to jesus why are you hanging out with messy people? Luke chapter 15. Verse 1, the question's asked, why are you hanging out with notorious sinners and Pharisees? And, or excuse me, notorious sinners and tax collectors. Notorious sinners were sinners that weren't sending on the download. They were sending out loud and they were okay with it. Uh, in fact, they almost, uh, it's almost like that point of time where you move from shame to pride in your sin. It started with, you know, you didn't boast in it, you kept it quiet, but now like you put it on social media, you celebrate it, you allow the drunken fit to be broadcast for everyone, and you're like, best life. And so it's moved from this moment of spiral to demonizing church people who perhaps weren't representing Christ well to you, all the while while you deify a lifestyle that's dishonoring to God and will never lead to an abundant way of living. For many of us, we find ourselves in that notorious sinner category. We've run out of money to pay it by cover-up to cover up the sin anymore. Instead, we wear it proudly on our sleeve. Uh, There's another group called tax collectors. They were the biggest betrayers in... uh, people that had traded in people for money. they Essentially, they sold their families and their people so that they could take money from their people to feed an invading army. They were not considered clean or allowed to be in social circles. You wouldn't associate with them. This is like the most dysfunctional family member, the one that stole the inheritance, the one that constantly on the down low was stealing from grandma when grandma wasn't looking, or grandma maybe overlooked it because she didn't want to love him with tough love, and now there's a lot of resentment and bitterness because he betrayed everyone and took the inheritance before there was an inheritance to be given and divided up. And then there's this group of Pharisees that put out an outward posture of perfection, but Jesus says they're whitewashed tombs. They religiously looked apart, the they were the suburbia of this time. They looked like they had it together. Their, their kids were clean cut. They were well represented in uh, uh, public squares and in society circles, but at the same time, they didn't have a relationship with God, so all they had was meaningless rituals that they were going through that Zephaniah speaks of as a God in hearing those meaningless rituals as we say words that we don't mean and we speak of a God that we don't serve that God closes his ears because he doesn't want to hear the song we sing of our half-hearted happy birthday to him with no allegiance that's going to follow from the state that we're making about him the question allows jesus to teach the heart of the father god's heart towards you god's heart towards us he tells a story of a shepherd that has 99 sheep and he leaves the 99 to go find this one stupid sheep that has wandered off it seems reckless but so is the love of god tells the story of a woman who has a band that perhaps was a marital band it was, uh, that had coins on it, and one coin fell off that band in terror that she had lost it. Though it was of value, it wasn't of such value that it would require an entire day's time or a, a, an extended period of time to search, she then cleans the whole house, turning it upside down just to find that one coin because not only did it have a monetary value, it had a, a, a sentimental value to her, and she had to find it. Again, this is God's heart for us. So then he really lays it on, and he concludes Luke 15 with this story about his heart for the messy people in the world by telling us the story of two lost sons. I know that you're category in your bible says the lost son oh but there's two of them that are lost here one's near the father and one's wandered from the father we'll talk about the one that wandered from the father today but for a lot of you you're near the father but you've wandered way off from the father even though you look like you fit the part and are in the role and place where you should be you go to church but your heart's not near god you give an assent to god but you don't actually serve god we'll we'll talk about that person next week. Instead, let's look at this person who wanders from the father, the younger brother in Luke 15 verse 11. Are you tracking with me? Are you awake this morning? Anybody still got an amen, a hallelujah, preach on preacher in them after Easter. Verse 11, let me read some scripture, maybe a lot more than you're used to to you. Luke 15 verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father I want, a, I want my share of your estate now before you die. How many of you are the younger sibling in your family? Hands raised, hands raised. Okay, keep your hand up if you're a younger sibling, and if at some time you felt like you were the forgotten child, the hand-me-down child, the overlooked child. No hands are going down. <laughs> How many of you, hands down, as the younger child, actually got left somewhere as a child? Amen. Amen, amen. Uh, There is a natural um, competitiveness that I have found with most second and third siblings. Uh, There's a shadow, whether it's functional or dysfunctional, that's cast by the first child that sets a roadmap. It sets a roadmap for when you go through school. If they're elite in mathematics, you're expected to be elite in mathematics if they are a great farmer or a great athlete you're expected to be like them if they work and are very helpful you're expected to be like them how many of you at some point got tired of feeling like you had to be like the older sibling anybody ever been there see we immediately jump in this story and we demonize the guy for wanting to leave yet most of you have thought about doing exactly what he's doing in this story most of you at some point in time have not had a grounded sense of value. So you went outside of your father's house, perhaps, in your family's house, perhaps, where you didn't feel valued to go and find an identity apart from the shadow of whoever it is you were running from. So the younger brother fed up with the shadow of the older brother or the example of the older brother or of just being under his father's house because who has not been 16 years old and thought to themselves these rules and boundaries are so oppressive I cannot wait until I get out of this house so that I can live life free so I can live life my way on my terms I've always wanted Burger King to be my life anthem have it your way How many of you have had it your way enough that you're ready to go back home for the laundry service and the meals and the turndown service? Just saying. Sets up the story. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between two sons. A few days later, his younger son, packed all his belongings, and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money while living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, someone who wasn't ethnically Jewish, a Gentile man, to hire him. And he sent him into the field to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding, the pigs, looked good to him which had no nutritional value in and of themselves. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food, enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me back as a hired servant. So he returned to the home of his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion, He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father, before he could even get the comeback speech out, said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead, and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So, the party Began. The party began. <clears throat> I love this story. It highlights in various ways the stories you and I have lived. Let me explain. Uh, as I was speaking of just a moment ago, all of us at some point in time have fell into Eve and Adam's deception. Eve and Adam's deception is the belief that outside of the authority of God, there can be a life that is abundant absent from his presence, that there is a joy that can be found absent from his lordship, that there is a fulfillment and a satisfaction that will last outside of him sustaining it within us. There is this idea that God, in his rules and in his ethics, is in some way trying to restrict us and not allow us to have the good life under his authority over us, So in various ways and at various times, you and I have gone outside of God looking for what he wasn't giving us that we thought was good and in season and on time in our time. So walking away from God, we walk the path of Adam and Eve, like our first father and first mother. We walk the path of the prodigal son, and we think if we could just remove ourselves from an existence that has his voice in it, that has his rules in it, that has his boundaries in it, then we'll be free. Then we'll be living. Then we will thrive. But let me let you in on this. It's a myth. I call it the freedom myth, and the freedom myth is the idea that freedom will only exist when free from all authority. That freedom will only exist when free from all authority. This is the the world that you live in the current society that we're a part of they believe that there should be no restriction in any area of your life and that within it you should be free to live any way you want to live but there's a big problem with that when you do not have boundaries that are god given and assigned to you by him and not you and voted on by you what you end up with is a life that is reckless and wasted what you end up with is a life that's not free but a life that's actually in bondage But most of us don't believe it. We wander for long seasons of time with half-hearted allegiances to a God to please grandma and a family, to make them think that we're Christian, to sing about a God on a Sunday that we show up to and hear about in church just so that we can continue to keep our life really not within the hands of God but within the control of ourselves. It's the freedom myth. The son wants out of the father's house and out of the father's control. The father in the son's mind does not have what is best in mind for his younger son. Perhaps he thinks he favors the older one. Perhaps he thinks that he's just different than his father and is overlooked by his father. We don't really get details into it. We just know that for some reason this person has come to the lie that he will only be free when he leaves his father's house. In the son's mind, the father is restricting the life of the son. So abundance cannot be found within the house of the father. He believes that there's a better life to be found away from the father instead of near to the father. As a result of it, he comes and asks something profound of the father. Give me my one-third share of the estate that's due to me at your death. Now, it is okay for your father uh, to choose to give you his, uh, your inheritance before you die of his own accord. But it is highly offensive For you to go to your father who is still alive and kicking and go, give me my share that's to come on your deathbed. It's essentially a way of saying, you're dead, I want nothing to do with you, and I don't ever want to see you again. I'm going to go and take what's mine, which wasn't his. Because let me just be clear, your daddy's money and your mama's legacy is not something that you have a right to. It is theirs to steward for the glory of God, and it's the gift that God gave them. They may, by God's good graces, extend it down to you in the next generation. But for you to sit on your high horse and believe that they owe you something carries over into the attitude that plagues a lot of believers I know who believe that God owes them something other than wrath and condemnation and separation. But God doesn't give you what you owe. So a lot of you are running around pounding your chest about what you deserve. And my my prayer is that you don't actually get the realization of that prayer. Because if God gave you what you would deserve, it would be a really bad day in a place called hell. I deserve better. You don't. You don't. You see, that's foundational to you understanding grace. Grace means you get what Christ deserved. It's his sweat equity. It's his legacy. And it's his desire to share it with bums like me and you. That's what we deserve. We we deserve life apart from him. We all in various ways and in various details have done what the prodigal has done. We've walked away from the father. Jesus said it this way. We all have like sheep gone astray. We've all turned our own devices, our own ways, our own distractions Instead of serving God, we've sought to be God and be served and to be worshipped. Only two, by God's grace, come to the crashing realization that we are not God enough to sustain ourselves enough, to be joyful enough, to be powerful enough, to be secure enough, to live a life outside of the presence of God and the power of God that will sustain us through all of life's journey and all of life's difficulties. You see, verse 13 and 16 takes us into the story. After he gets one-third of the estate, a few days later, he packs up everything that he owns and he moves off to a distant land. I think the KJV says he went to the far off place. The old Baptist preacher back in the day said he went down. He went down because anytime you walk away from God, the old Baptist preachers say you got to go down, 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 down. How many of you ever saw the little child that read the story of Jonah? It was famous on YouTube a few years back. And she got really hung on the word that he went down into the belly of the And So she, in her animated uh, nature, perhaps watching and mimicking her pastor, she's standing at the pulpit reading the book of Jonah. She's five, six years old. And she goes, and Jonah went down, 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 down into the belly of the. For some of you, God's grace is you wanted an existence on this side of eternity that was absent from his presence, believing that it would bring freedom. And God said, Go for it. He allowed you with his resources to have your run. It was his air you breathed to get there. It was his life that he was sustaining that was allowing you to live, that allowed you to live there. Hmm. This is perhaps one of the most significant ways that we experience... God bringing us to our end as he allows us to run to the end of ourselves, to rock bottom. Being in a place that we never dreamed that we would be, doing things that we never dreamed that we would do, sitting in a place uh, that we can't imagine that would ever be a part of our life story. And it's in that moment that we finally turn and go, maybe, maybe God wasn't the suppressive, mean, angry, never pleased father that I made him out to be. took all of his stuff he went away into a distant land and there he wasted all of his money in while living some of the text infer and some of the writers infer that there were lots of friends in the while living and friends is that loose word the the bible says you should be careful with who you call friend because there are going to be times where you need a real friend and if you don't have a and i would submit a christ-centered friendship relationship and a community around you what you're going to find yourself is around a crowd of people that were there to eat from your table but when your table is empty, they will not be there to weep at your table with you. The Proverbs says there's a friend that sits closer than a brother that was born for adversity. And see, some, some of you, you, you don't have that in your life. you got people that are born for the party, but they are not there for the adversity. Hmm. Look at the text with me. After all the while living, about the time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. This was very much taboo in Jewish culture. If you touched pigs, ate pigs, were around pigs, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't come into the presence of God. The point in putting it in there is to make a statement. Technically, the prodigal has gone so far that he's irredeemable. People don't even pray about it anymore. That's how far gone they are. Like your mama stopped praying. They gave up. Sure, they hope, but they're not going to sweat it out in prayer anymore. You're in the the most vile of places you can be. He glues himself. He, He gets into it. He's broke. He's hungry. He has nowhere to go. And in that moment, he thinks, double down. Double down. The text says he glued himself to the Gentile pig farmer in the literal language. So he, he literally is like, okay, <clears throat> I've dishonored my family. I've dishonored my family name. I've wasted my father's legacy. I'm at rock bottom, but I think I can dig more. And maybe on the other side, there'll be something better. Just keep going. Just keep Resolving to improve yourself year over year. Just, just, just keep trying. Just, 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 just three steps, five steps, weight loss, achievements, trophies. Just a little bit more work. And what happens when you sit in the driver's seat of your life hell-bent on being the one that determines its direction and destination as you find yourself at a crashing point of an end of a path that is so rock right bottom that if you could see yourself there now you would run to Christ in this moment. So I'm, I'm pleading with some of you that God would give you the foresight to know that you are in dangerous territory. As it says in the book of Genesis, uh, sin is crouching at some of your door. And you think you're you're gonna walk through a door into freedom apart from God, and all you're going to do is open a door and be devoured. And I'm pleading with you to hear me out. You've already written the affair in your head, and it's gonna wreck the marriage. You've been practicing it between your ears, it's gonna wreck the marriage. You think the sin is in secret and you've gotten away with it. Everything that's done in the dark will be brought to the light. That's not a Johnny Cash song. That is a biblical principle that you can count on. There's not one jot or tittle of the law that passes away. Every bit of it is before God. And we are going to stand before a holy and righteous God, either cleansed by the blood of the Savior, not our works, not our self-righteousness, or justly condemned by our self-righteous works that will never achieve the standard of righteousness that the Savior has called us to, that is the minimum standard required for us to be let in. He's eaten the pig's food He's glued to the Gentile pig farmer He's gone too far I remember there were a couple years ago That some people misquoted a book uh, A text in the Bible in Mark About blaspheming the Holy Spirit And they started to get online So that Christians would stop inviting them to church And they thought, well if I say this Then I'm irredeemable you realize that the person that we serve and, and worshiped took everyone that was in the irredeemable category, and he ate with them and loved them and fellowshiped them. He pursued them, he wooed them, He wouldn't give up on them. When their mama stopped praying, he still was pursuing. Like, like you, you, you do under, understand that we serve a God that doesn't give up quickly. We serve serve a God that endures the rebellious of the prodigal, the rebellion of the prodigal, and pursues us even to the very ends of our self. He's eating the the, the pods of the pigs. In there, he begins to reflect. Look at it, verse 17. When he finally came to his... Aerosmith, uh, he wrote a song, uh, and it it says, In the blink of the eye... um, your eyes are opened up. I can't remember the name of it. It's it's amazing that in the blink of an eye, anybody remember the song? Anybody want to help me out? No. Okay, great. No one listened to Aerosmith. Praise (laughs) the Lord. Okay, my point, good Christians, good Christians, none of you. (sighs) My my point is that it's amazing to me how I have been doing something that I've seen others do, and I'm like, that's not going to end well, and yet when I'm in it, I have no clue. Can anyone relate to that? It's easier for me to see your sin than it is for me to see my sin. Like I'm I'm very deceitful about myself, and I can convince myself, oh, there's good intentions there when there's evil ones that are always lurking behind what I'm doing. So he comes to his senses. It's a wake-up moment. It's a, what am I doing? Why am I here? And I think it could be extended to some of us who perhaps are in Christ, but for whatever reason have wandered aimlessly for years with excuses and reasons, and many of them valid, for why we we are hesitant about intimacy with God. And my prayer for you is that perhaps you would have that moment that the prodigal has where he goes, Why am I here? The only way it has power over me to be here as a child of God is for me to sit here and not move. It's almost like he realizes, I have a home. I have a father. There's food in the house. The servants in his house eat. Why would I stay here with a slave master that does not care if I starve, only wants to work me and grind me into the ground, and is allowing me to sit and have to eat the pig food in order to endure. Why would I stay? It's that that moment. And I pray many of you who have not had it, have it. Why would I live this way? Why would I give my entire life misprioritized for a job so I can get a watch after wasting time in places God never called for me to waste it, now looking at the time that I wasted, trying to make up for it, being just as selfish as a 20-year-old chasing experiences in my 60s, wasting time off mission from God, and then demonizing the 20-year-olds that do the very same thing that I worked my whole life, wasting time so I could do it at the end. This is a dangerous thing, guys. not that God doesn't want you to work. It's that God wants you to work for him in his glory in whatever you do. Whether you eat or drink, you do it for the glory of God. That's the book of Colossians. But if you cannot connect the purpose of God with the work that you do, then you'll be misrepresentative of him in the work that you are doing. So then money becomes the chief end, even though you say you're Christian. So your yes and your no is more about the paycheck or the pay raise or the opportunity to rise than it is about the people that perhaps God has placed you to reach. I know people that have turned down big significant raises because they had a conviction that there was a people to reach in the place that they were at and God had called them to do more than just achieve a paycheck but to be a representative and ambassador of him where are the ambassadors that put their boots on and go to work whenever everyone else is abandoning and running away are you an ambassador do you represent his kingdom or is it just the highest bidder wins Which, last I checked, is a form of prostitution. You pay me money for the service, but it's not. I get it. I'm I'm getting really into people's business and comfort zones, which is what we do here. In his reflection, he thinks about the far-off country and his father's house. There's observations he makes the far-off country. There's observations he makes about his father's house. I'll go through them quickly. Uh, In the far-off country, there's a lack of accountability. No one is saying, hey, you're not good, are you? Hey, this isn't going to end well. You've got no plan beyond tonight's party. You've got no plan beyond tonight's binger. What does this look like when the money runs out and the booze runs out and you can't medicate yourself with your daddy issues with the inheritance that you bitterly are spending and squandering and wasting? You see, if if you've not had a friend... If you've not had a friend that's looked at you in the last, I don't know, 90 days, and at some point been like, "Are you okay?" and, and felt emboldened enough to look at you and go, "When you say why, because it, it seems like you're off. It seems like your your attitude's a little snarky. You're 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 pretty mean towards your kids right now. That that was not a really redemptive, nice thing to do. Like, are you are you okay? Like, if you can't go, if you've not had, don't have some people in your life that can walk up to you and go, "Hey, I think you're missing the mark of the gospel here." that I don't think you've found biblical community. You can be in a group, and I'm glad you're studying Philippians. That's awesome. But there's got to be a point where you hold each other accountable to the, to, to the inconsistencies of our faith. Right? Like, I need people that see my blind spots because I can see yours easier than I can see mine. What does he not have in the far-off place? Accountability of any sort. Do whatever you want. Hey, be you. Follow your heart. That's the stupidest thing you could say. Follow your heart, it'll lead you straight to hell. Okay, lack of accountability. Lack of accountability. What else do we find? We find wasted time, wasted resources, and wasted days. Everything's a waste. Everything's meaningless. How do you know you're in the far off place? No one is having tough conversations with you because you don't have friends. That love you. That'll be there if the money's gone or whatever benefit you're giving them. It's a transactional relationship at that point in time not covenantal how do you know you're in the far place because everything's a waste now some of you are like well it's not a waste right now I love the pay raise I love the car I love the house I love the boat why do you have to keep buying more why, why is it never enough I love the new marriage I love the new wife why, why, why are we constantly trading in when struggles come instead of being made through the struggles by the hand and the work of God See, this is speaking to the ugly thing that we don't want to see. You see, we're, we're all the little prodigals running around here. All of us are. We've all experienced the waste of life and time and resource whenever we don't connect it to the purpose and the glory of God. What do we find in the far off place? There's famine. It's never enough. There's slavery. He's glued to a slave master. He's eating the scraps. He pays the bill. He eats the leftovers. He pays the bill, he eats the scraps. He's glued to sin and he realizes I should be glued to the father. What does he remember about the father's house? In his father's house, there's enough. Enough grace, enough room. The servants eat and it's not the pig slot. There's stability in his father's house. There's abundance in his father's house. There's covenantal love in his father's house. And he thinks maybe I'm not worthy of that same love that made me a son. But maybe I'm worthy enough to be called a servant. So he does what a lot of us do. He makes a story called, Let, he writes a story called Let's Make a Deal. That you all done it. Whenever you get in trouble, you've got to explain that trouble to the authority figures in your life. And you've got to make yourself out to be a victim or an innocent, it was an innocent mistake, even though you knew it was wrong. I was with Ray Ray and Jamarco uh, in 11th grade after the basketball game. And we was listening to Slim Cutter Calhoun. Uh, he, he's one of my favorite rappers back then. And uh, we were being a nuisance. I was flying. I was doing about 80 in a... Not 80 mile an hour zone. And uh, we were driving through the hood in the middle of the night. I was new to the hood. Because uh, I had been raised up in the country And so Ray Ranger Marco was introducing me to hood things And hood rats and all the other stuff And so we was having fun in the hood And I thought, oh, this is great Well, I got blue lit, doing 80 in the 45 And they started freaking out Because they had some experiences that were different from mine, I guess And, and they're like, this is going to go bad And I was like, ah, oh, don't worry about it And they like, why? I was like, because I'm going to act like the craziest, most polite white person You've ever seen in your life And I rolled the window down And so the officer goes to the window I'm like, hello, officer, how are you this evening? He didn't buy it. He wrote, <laughs> he wrote me a ticket. And I had to tell my dad that the insurance was going to go up next month because I was drag racing in a Bronco. <laughs> so I wrote my story the whole way home. I walked into their house. I got down on my knee right by my father's bed as a 17-year-old kid. I, <laughs> In the middle of his dead sleep said, And I, for the next five minutes in his half-sleep, half-awake slumber, eloquently explained how I'm sure the speeding limit had changed. And the officer was just looking to meet his quota for that month, and this was not any result of my doing. I began to plead with him not to take my car and my sound system, which was a big part of my identity and my value, because I was wanting to date Sherry, and... uh, uh, Sherry-like guys that, you know, were l- a little less Caucasian than I was naturally from my background. and uh, I, I pontificated this story, my comeback story. Um, it didn't work. I, re- I received the full weight of the law, the punitive punishment. My car was gone for 30-plus days, probably should have been gone for more because if my son did it, i kill him. What's amazing about this story is that when contrition sets in, all of the narrative of shame changes. He shows up thinking that he's going to meet a father that begrudgingly might let him in the door. But the text says, around verse 18, I believe, verse 19, can you put it back up there for me? Yeah. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but please take me. Alan is a hired servant. Verse 20 says this. Can you go to the next one? So, he returned home, innocent, with the smell of the pig still on him. He probably tried to wet wipe it off, but there's some things wet wipes can't get off. And while he was still a long way off, before he hit the village where everyone would go, here they come, before the church people could whisper, before the religious self-righteous could condemn him and judge him and glare at him, father saw him. Now I want you to think about the worst moment of your life. The moment where in sin you went farther than you ever thought that you would go. You did things you never dreamed you would do. You were staying in it longer than you ever thought you would stay. It was only supposed to be once, but now it's become a lifestyle. And I want you to think about the moment where perhaps you received the gift of coming to your sense and realizing you were sinful and in need of a father, but unworthy of the father that the scriptures speak of. In that moment, when you thought about your father's face the second he saw you, your heavenly father, what did you imagine his expression to be in that first moment? What did you think his response would be in that first moment? I doubt it was one of love and compassion, because the only thing the father had for the prodigal, who was still called son, was love and compassion, not shame, not I told you so, not I... Maybe you can earn your way back, but you don't deserve. You stay at the fringe of town, outside of town. You don't shame my name. You don't run it through the mud. Don't even mention that you're my son. See, that's the narrative that you've written by the enemy's whisper in your ear. The narrative that God wants you to know, the answer that Jesus gives to the question of why he hangs out with messy people like Donna's and Kathy's and me and you, is that when he sees us in our state apart from him, his desire is mercy grace and not wrath. This is his desire. This is his heart. The son has not changed. He just knows he needs to be changed. The son doesn't know if it's possible to be received. He just knows that if there's any shot, he has to be received by his father. So he's filled with love and compassion. He runs to his son. Why? Because his son's not taking the walk along back into town. No, no, no. He's walking with the pride of the father. He gets the robe put on him, which signals sonship. He gets the insignia of the family, uh, the family back on his finger as a ring. They put shoes on his feet. Why? Because he's not a slave. He's a son. My daughter Macy's right here. She's very scared. But come here, baby. Can we come here real quick? Y'all give it up for her. She's 11 years old. I love you, I love you. What's my relationship to you? What am I? I'm your dad, I'm your dad. That makes you what? You're my daughter, you're my daughter, right? Uh, Now, Macy, I want you to do me a favor really quick. I just want you to run to the back of the room and stand there really quick. Will you do that for me? Go. So here she goes. Now, just a second ago, Macy, I was your dad, you were my daughter, and we were close, right? Now we've got some distance between us. Are you still my daughter? You still are my daughter. Geography doesn't make me less your father, Are you less my daughter, you understand? So even should you find yourself in your life way away, you need to know I'm your dad and you can always come home because I love you. Come here, come here, come here, run, run. macy have you and i <laughs> baptisms on, have you have have you and i ever had an argument yeah right yeah did that argument make you not my daughter no no has there ever been a time where you didn't like living in my house <laughs> did that make you not my daughter no no has there has there ever been a time where i got it wrong and messed up and being a good dad to you Look, your heavenly father, he'll never do that. But let me let me be clear. That didn't make you less my daughter. I love you. I love you. Um, has there ever been a time you said something or done something you regretted? Yeah, yeah. Here's the good news. It didn't make you any less my daughter. You see, there's nothing you can do. There's no geography or place that you can run to. There's nothing you can say. Even if you believe it for a long season of your life that, I, you know, you want nothing to do with me. There's nothing that will ever change the fact that God, by his grace and good gift, daughter, and let me be your father. I love you. I love you. Let me sit down. This, this is my point that I'm trying to get through to you. If as earthly fathers, we love our daughters in that way, how much more does your heavenly Father love you? He doesn't love what you're going to be when you come to church three weeks in a row and stop cussing. He doesn't love what you're going to be when you conquer your addiction. He doesn't love what you're going to be when your life outwardly perfectly aligns to the portrait of what American Christianity calls it to be. He loves you right here. Right now. No geography. No no thought. No state. Nothing. This is what Romans says. For I am convinced... Neither, he- the, 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 neither height nor depths nor principalities that come or principalities that will be in the future can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. He loves us right here, right now. And his invitation, listen to me, is to those that have never known his lordship in his home, is to today for you to be adopted for you to know that his desire is that you have become a part of his family, his adopted sons and daughters. He knows exactly what he's getting into. He's not stuttering through the invitation that he's extending to you. He meant whosoever, and you can be a whosoever, that today, by faith, through grace, can come into belief that Jesus was enough to pay for all you did in the pig pen so that you can now live in the house of your father. And so today, listen to me today, come home. Come home. Come home, come home. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what church people have said about too far. Or you got to, like, like just come home. Just come home. For some of you, you've been in the Father's house. You've been near to the Father. And you ran for various reasons and for various means. You've run. And you feel distant. And you feel cut off. And you feel like you're, you're messy and muddy and irredeemable. And you just can't come back. Because if you just come back, then just come. Come home. Just come home. There's a group of people that are about to be baptized. If you uh, signed up to be baptized, you can head to the back and there's a group that are going to take you to get changed. They're going to get you ready. Let's give it up for them. They're going forward and letting you see and hear that story, of what God has done on their behalf. Today, if that is something you need to do as a step of obedience, we want to invite you to go as they're going and get changed. We have shorts, we have shirts, we have towels. You don't have to come prepared and do what God has called you to do. We got it on hand, on hand in the house for you. So if you need to be baptized and that's something you need to do, you can go and talk to our elders and pastors. We love talking about what that means. But for others, as they're getting changed, I want to invite you to salvation in Christ Jesus. I want to invite you to a new life as a son and a daughter of the Most High King the means have been set by the very blood of Christ. It has been poured out so that you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, no matter how hard you've tried, can have a pathway home. It may be narrow, but it is clear. Jesus is the name that is above every other name. And it is His name alone that we can find salvation and hope and redemption in. And if you've not found that in anything else that you've been looking for and searching for, then I want to invite you today in this moment to stand to your feet, leave your old life behind, come home. You will not walk this road alone. I believe the Spirit of God is wooing you. The Savior of Christ has placed the trail before you. And we as a family want to receive you and lead you in the next step of following Jesus. So if that's you, let's stand to our feet. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Prayer team, you come. Prayer team, you come.